Section 23 of the Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume 10. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Burke. The Book of the Thousand Nights and a Night, Volume 10, by Anonymous. Translated by Richard Francis Burton. Social Condition A. Al-Islam I here propose to treat of the social condition which the Knights discloses, of Al-Islam at the earlier period of its development, concerning the position of women, and about the pornology of the great saga book. A. Al-Islam A splendid and glorious life was that of Baghdad in the days of the mighty Caliph, when the capital had towered to the zenith of grandeur and was already trembling and tottering to the fall. The center of human civilization, which was then confined to Greece and Arabia, and the metropolis of an empire exceeding in extent the widest limits of Rome, it was essentially a city of pleasure, a Paris of the sixth century. The Palace of Peace, Dar al-Salam, worthy successor of Babylon and Nineveh, which had outrivaled Damascus, the smile of the prophet, and Kufa, the successor of Hira, and the magnificent creation of Caliph Omar, possessed unrivaled advantages of sight and climate. The Tigris-Euphrates Valley, where the fabled Garden of Eden has been placed, in early ages succeeded the Nile Valley as a great center of human development, and the prerogative of a central and commanding position still promises it even in the present state of decay and desolation under the unspeakable Turk. A magnificent future, when railways and canals shall connect it with Europe. The city of palaces and government offices, hotels and pavilions, mosques and colleges, kiosks and squares, bazaars and markets, pleasure grounds and orchards, adorned with all the graceful charms which Saracenic architecture had borrowed from the Byzantines lay couched upon the banks of the Dijla Hidekel under a sky of marvellous purity, and in a climate which makes mere life a kaif, the luxury of tranquil enjoyment. It was surrounded by far-extending suburbs, like Rusafa on the eastern side, and villages like Baturanja, dear to the votaries of pleasure. With the roar of a gigantic capital mingled the hum of prayer, the trilling of birds, the thrilling of harp and lute, the shrilling of pipes, the witching strains of the professional Alma, and the minstrel's lay. The population of Baghdad must have been enormous when the smallest number of her sons who fell victims to the Hulaku Khan in 1258 was estimated at 800,000, while other authorities more than double the terrible butcher's bill. Her policy and polity were unique. A well-regulated routine of tribute and taxation, personally inspected by the caliph, a network of waterways, canaux d'arrosage, a noble system of highways provided with viaducts, bridges, and caravansaries, and a postal service of mounted couriers enabled it to collect as in a reservoir the wealth of the outer world. The facilities for education were upon the most extended scale. Large sums from private as well as public sources were allotted to mosques, 
each of which, by the admirable rule of al-Islam, was expected to contain a school. These establishments were richly endowed and stocked with professors collected from every land between Khorasan and Morocco, and immense libraries attracted the learned of all nations. It was a golden age for poets and panegyrists, Quranists and literati, preachers and rhetoricians, physicians and scientists who, besides receiving high salaries and fabulous presents, were treated with all the honors of Chinese mandarins, and, like these, the humblest Muslim, fisherman or artisan, could aspire through knowledge or savoir-faire to the highest offices of the empire. The effect was a grafting of Egyptian and Old Mesopotamian, of Persian and Greco-Latin fruits, by long time deteriorated upon the strong young stock of Arab genius. And the result, as usual after such imping, was a shoot of exceptional luxuriance and vitality. The educational establishments devoted themselves to the three main objects recognized by the Muslim world— theology, civil law, and belles-lettres, and a multitude of trained counselors enabled the ruling powers to establish and enlarge that complicated machinery of government at once concentrated and decentralized, a despotism often fatal to the wealthy, great but never neglecting the interests of the humbler lieges, which forms the beau ideal of oriental administration. Under the chancellors of the empire, the Qazis administered law and order, justice and equality, and from their decisions the poorest subject, Muslim or miscreant, could claim with the general approval of the lieges access and appeal to the caliph, who, as imam or antistes of the faith, was high president of a court of cassation. Under wise administration, agriculture and commerce, the twin pillars of national prosperity necessarily flourished. A scientific canalization, with irrigation works inherited from the ancients, made the Mesopotamian valley a rival of Kemi the Black Land, and rendered cultivation a certainty of profit, not a mere speculation, as it must ever be to those who perforce rely upon the fickle reins of heaven. The remains of extensive mines prove that this source of public wealth was not neglected. Navigation laws encouraged transit and traffic, and ordinances for the fisheries aimed at developing a branch of industry which is still backward even during the 19th century. Most substantial encouragement was given to trade and commerce, to manufacture and handicrafts, by the flood of gold which poured in from all parts of the earth by the presence of a splendid and luxurious court, and by the call for new arts and industries which such a civilization would necessitate. The crafts were distributed into guilds and syndicates under their respective chiefs, whom the government did not govern too much. These shabandars, mukadams, and nakibs regulated several trades, rewarded the industrious, punished the fraudulent, and were personally answerable as we still see at Cairo, for the conduct of their constituents. Public order, the sine qua non of stability and progress, was preserved. First, by the satisfaction of the lieges who, despite their characteristic turbulence, had few if any grievances. And secondly, by a well-directed and efficient police, 
an engine of statecraft which in the West seems most difficult to perfect. In the East, however, the Wali or chief commissioner can reckon more or less upon the unsalaried assistance of society. The cities are divided into quarters, shut off one from other by night, and every Muslim is expected, by his law and religion, to keep watch upon his neighbors, to report their delinquencies, and, if necessary, himself to carry out the penal code. But, in difficult cases, the guardians of the peace were assisted by a body of private detectives, women as well as men. These were called Tawabun, the penitents, because like our Bow Street runners, they had given up an even less respectable calling. Their adventures still delight the vulgar, as did the Newgate calendar of past generations. And to this class we owe the tales of Calamity Ahmad, Delilah the Wily One, Saladin with the three chiefs of police, and Al-Malik Al-Zahir with the sixteen constables. Here, and in many other places, we also see the origin of that picaresque literature which arose in Spain and overran Europe, and which begat Le Moyen de Parvenir. I need say no more on this heading, the civilization of Baghdad contrasting with the barbarism of Europe, then Germanic, the Knights itself being the best expositor. On the other hand, the action of the state religion upon the state, the condition of al-Islam during the reign of al-Rashid, its declension from the primitive creed, and its relation to Christianity and Christendom, require a somewhat extended notice. In offering the following observations, it is only fair to declare my standpoints. 1. All forms of faith, that is, belief in things unseen, not subject to the senses, and therefore unknown and, in our present stage of development, unknowable, are temporary and transitory. No religion hitherto promulgated amongst men shows any prospect of being final or otherwise finite. 2. Religious ideas, which are necessarily limited, may all be traced home to the old seat of science and art, creeds and polity in the Nile Valley, and to this day they retain the clearest signs of their origin. 3. All so-called revealed religions consist mainly of three portions, a cosmogony more or less mythical, a history more or less falsified, and a moral code more or less pure. Al-Islam, it has been said, is essentially a fighting faith, and never shows to full advantage save in the field. The faith and luxury of a wealthy capital, the debauchery and variety of vices which would spring up therein, naturally as weeds in a rich fallow, and the cosmopolitan views which suggest themselves in a meeting place of nations, were sore trials to the primitive simplicity of the religion of resignation, the saving faith. Harun and his cousin wife, as has been shown, were orthodox and even fanatical, but the Barmecides were strongly suspected of heretical leanings, and while the many-headed showed itself, as usual, violent and ready to do battle about an azan call, the learned, who sooner or later leavened the masses, were profoundly dissatisfied with the dryness and barrenness of Mohammed's creed, so acceptable to the vulgar, and were devising a series of schisms and innovations. 
In the tale of Tawadud, the reader has seen a fairly extended catechism of the creed, din, the ceremonial observances, mazab, and the apostolic practices, sunat, of the Shafi school, which, with minor modifications, applies to the other three orthodox. Europe has by this time clean forgotten some tricks of her former bigotry, such as Maomet, an idol, and Maomeri, a place of Muslim worship. Educated men no longer speak with Akli of the great impostor Mahomet, nor believe with the learned and violent Dr. Prideaux that he was foolish and wicked enough to dispossess certain poor orphans, the sons of an inferior artificer, the Banu Najjar. A host of books has attempted, though hardly with success, to enlighten popular ignorance upon a crucial point, namely, that the founder of al-Islam, like the founder of Christianity, never pretended to establish a new religion. His claims, indeed, were limited to purging the school of Nazareth of the dross of ages and of the manifold abuses with which long use had infected its early constitution. Hence, to the unprejudiced observer, his reformation seems to have brought it nearer the primitive and original doctrine than any subsequent attempts, especially the Judaizing tendencies of the so-called Protestant churches. The Meccan apostle preached that the Hanafiya, or Orthodox belief, which he subsequently named Al-Islam, was first taught by Allah, in all its purity and perfection, to Adam, and consigned to certain inspired volumes now lost, and that this primal holy writ received additions in the days of his descendants, Shis, Seth, and Idris, Enoch, the founder of the Sabian, not Sabaean, faith. Here, therefore, Al-Islam at once avoided the deplorable assumption of the Hebrews and the Christians, an error which has been so injurious to their science and their progress, of placing their first man in circa B.C. 4000, or somewhat subsequent to the building of the pyramids. The pre-Adamite races and dynasties of the Muslims remove a great stumbling block and square with the anthropological views of the present day. In process of time, when the Adamite religion demanded a restoration and a supplement, its pristine virtue was revived, restored, and further developed by the books communicated to Abraham, whose dispensation thus takes the place of the Hebrew Noah and his Noachidae. In due time the Torah, or Pentateuch, superseded and abrogated the Abrahamic dispensation. The Zabur of David, a book not confined to the Psalms, reformed the Torah. The Injil, or Evangel, reformed the Zabur and was itself purified, quickened, and perfected by the Koran, which means the reading or the recital. Hence Locke, with many others, held Muslims to be unorthodox, that is, anti-Trinitarian Christians, who believe in the Immaculate Conception, in the Ascension, and in the divine mission of Jesus. And when priestly affirmed that Jesus was sent from God, all Muslims do the same. Thus they are, in the main point of doctrine, connected with the deity, simply Arians as opposed to Athanasians. History proves that the former was the earlier faith, which, though formally condemned in A.D. 325 
by Constantine's Council of Nice, overspread the Orient beginning with Eastern Europe, where Ulfilas converted the Goths, which, extended into Africa with the Vandals, claimed a victim or martyr as late as in the 16th century, and has by no means died out in this our day. The Talmud had been completed a full century before Muhammad's time, and the Evangel had been translated into Arabic. Moreover, travel and converse with his Jewish and Christian friends and companions must have convinced the Meccan apostle that Christianity was calling as loudly for reform as Judaism had done. An exaggerated Trinitarianism, or rather tritheism, a fourth person in saint worship, had virtually dethroned the deity, whilst Mariolatry had made the faith a religio muliebris, and superstition had drawn from its horrid fecundity an incredible number of heresies and monstrous absurdities. Even ecclesiastic writers draw the gloomiest picture of the Christian church in the 4th and 7th centuries, and one declares that the kingdom of heaven had become a hell. Egypt, distracted by the bloodthirsty religious wars of Copt and Greek, had been covered with hermitages by a yens eterna of semi-maniacal superstition. Syria, ever ferocious of heresies, had allowed many of her finest tracts to be monopolized by monkeries and nunneries. After many a tentative measure, Mohammed seems to have built his edifice upon two bases, the unity of the Godhead and the priesthood of the pater familias. He abolished forever the sacerdos alter Christus, whose existence, as someone acutely said, is the best proof of Christianity, and whom all know to be its weakest point. The Moslem family, however humble, was to be the model in miniature of the state, and every father in al-Islam was made priest and pontiff in his own house, able unaided to marry himself, to circumcise, to baptize, as it were, his children, to instruct them in the law and canonically to bury himself. Ritual properly so called, there was none. Congregational prayers were merely those of the individual and mass, and the only admitted approach to a sacerdotal order were the ulema, or scholars learned in the legalistic, and the mullah, or schoolmaster. By thus abolishing the priesthood, Mohammed reconciled ancient with modern wisdom. Scito dominum, said Cato, pro tota familia rem divinam facere. No priest at a birth, no priest at a marriage, no priest at a death, is the aspiration of the present rationalistic school. The Meccan apostle wisely retained the compulsory sacrament of circumcision and the ceremonial ablutions of the Mosaic law, and the five daily prayers not only diverted man's thoughts from the world, but tended to keep his body pure. These two institutions had been practiced throughout life by the founder of Christianity, but the followers who had never seen him abolished them for purposes evidently political and propagandist. By ignoring the truth that cleanliness is next to godliness, they paved the way for such saints as Simon Stylites and Saba, who, like the lowest Hindu orders of ascetics, made filth a concomitant and an evidence of piety. Even now, English Catholic girls are at times forbidden by Italian priests a frequent use of the bath, as a sign post to the sin of luxury. 
Mohammed would have accepted the morals contained in the Sermon of the Mount much more readily than did the Jews from whom its matter was borrowed. He did something to abolish the use of wine, which in the East means only its abuse, and he denounced games of chance, well knowing that the excitable races of subtropical climates cannot play with patience, fairness, or moderation. He set aside certain sums for charity to be paid by every believer, and he was the first to establish a poor rate, zakat. Thus he avoided the shame and scandal of mendicancy, which, beginning in the Catholic countries of southern Europe, extends to Syria and as far east as Christianity is found. By these and other measures of the same import, he made the ideal Muslim's life physically clean, moderate, and temperate. But Mohammed, the mastermind of the age, had, we must own, a genuine prophetic power, a sinking of self in the divine not distinguishable in kind from the inspiration of the Hebrew prophets, especially in that puritanical and pharisaic narrowness which, with characteristic simplicity, can see no good outside its own petty pale. He had insight as well as outsight, and the two taught him that personal and external reformation were mean matters compared with elevating the inner man. In the purer faith, which he was commissioned to abrogate and to quicken, he found two vital defects equally fatal to its energy and to its longevity. These were, and are, its egoism and its degradation of humanity. Thus, it cannot be a pleroma. It needs a higher law. As Judaism promised the good Jew all manner of temporal blessings, issue, riches, wealth, honor, power, length of days, so Christianity offered the good Christian, as a bribe to lead a godly life, personal salvation, and a future state of happiness, in fact, the kingdom of heaven, with an alternative threat of hell. It never rose to the height of the Hindu Brahmins and Lao Tse, the ancient teacher, of Zeno the Stoic, and his disciples the noble Pharisees, who believed and preached that virtue is its own reward. It never dared to say, Do good for good's sake. Even now it does not declare with Cicero, The sum of all of that what is right should be sought for its own sake, because it is right, and not because it is enacted. It does not even now venture to say with Philo Judaeus, The good man seeks the day for the sake of the day, and the light for the light's sake. And he labors to acquire what is good for the sake of the good itself, and not of anything else. So far for the egotism, naive and unconscious, of Christianity, whose burden is, do good to escape hell and gain heaven. A no less defect in the school of Galilee is its low view of human nature. Adopting as sober and authentic history an Osirian Hebrew myth, which Philo and a host of rabbis explain away, each after his own fashion, Christianity dwells, lovingly as it were, upon the fall of man, and seems to revel in the contemptible condition to which original sin condemned him. Thus groveling before God, ad majorem dei gloriam, to such a point was and is this carried, that the synod of Dort declared, Infantes infidelium orientes, in infantia reprobatos esse statui mus. Nay, 
many of the Orthodox still hold a Christian babe dying unbaptized to be unfit for higher existence, and some have even created a limbo expressly to domicile the innocents of whom is the kingdom of heaven. Here, if anywhere, the cloven foot shows itself and teaches us that the only solid stratum underlying priestcraft is one composed of LSD. And now I can never believe it, my lord bishop. We come to this earth ready damned, with the seeds of evil sown quite so thick at our birth, sings Edwin Arnold. We ask, can infatuation or hypocrisy, for it must be the one or the other, go farther? But the Adamical myth is opposed to all our modern studies. The deeper we dig into the earth's crust, the lower are the specimens of human remains which occur. And hitherto, not a single find has come to revive the faded glories of Adam, the goodliest man of men since born, his sons, the fairest of her daughters, Eve. Thus Christianity, admitting, like Judaism, its own saints and santons, utterly ignores the progress of humanity, perhaps the only belief in which the wise man can take unmingled satisfaction. Both have proposed an originally perfect being with hyacinthine locks, from whose type all the subsequent humans are degradations, physical and moral. We, on the other hand, hold from the evidence of our senses that early man was a savage very little superior to the brute, that during man's millions of years upon earth there has been a gradual advance towards perfection, at times irregular and even retrograde, but in the main progressive, and that a comparison of man in the nineteenth century with the caveman affords us the means of measuring past progress and of calculating the future of humanity. Mohammed was far from rising to the moral heights of the ancient sages. He did nothing to abate the egotism of Christianity. He even exaggerated the pleasures of its heaven and the horrors of its hell. On the other hand, he did much to exalt human nature. He passed over the fall with a light hand. He made man superior to the angels. He encouraged his fellow creatures to be great and good by dwelling upon their nobler, not their meaner side. He acknowledged, even in this world, the perfectibility of mankind, including womankind, and in proposing the loftiest ideal, he acted unconsciously upon the great dictum of chivalry, honneur oblige. His prophets were mostly faultless men, and, if the pure of Allah sinned, he sinned against himself. Lastly, he made Allah predetermine the career and fortunes, not only of empires, but of every created being, thus inculcating sympathy and tolerance of others, which is true humanity, and a proud resignation to evil as to good fortune. This is the doctrine which teaches the vulgar Muslim a dignity observed even by the blind traveler, and which enables him to display a moderation, a fortitude, and a self-command rare enough amongst the followers of the purer creed. Christian historians explain variously the portentous rise of al-Islam and its marvelous spread over vast regions, not only of pagans and idolaters, but of Christians. Prideaux disingenuously suggests that it seems to have been purposely raised up by God to be a scourge to the Christian church for not living in accordance with their most holy religion. 
The popular excuse is by the free use of the sword. This, however, is mere ignorance. In Muhammad's day, and early al-Islam, only actual fighters were slain. The rest were allowed to pay the jizva, or capitation tax, and to become tributaries, enjoying almost all the privileges of Muslims. But even had forcible conversion been most systematically practiced, it would have afforded an insufficient explanation of the phenomenal rise of an empire which covered more ground in eighty years than Rome had gained in eight hundred. During so short a time the grand revival of monotheism had consolidated into a mighty nation, despite their eternal blood feuds, the scattered Arab tribes. A six years' campaign had conquered Syria, and a luster or two utterly overthrew Persia, humbled the Greco-Roman, subdued Egypt, and extended the faith along northern Africa as far as the Atlantic. Within three generations the Copts of Nile land had formally cast out Christianity, and the same was the case with Syria, the cradle of the Nazarene, and Mesopotamia, one of his strongholds, although both were backed by all the remaining power of the Byzantine Empire. Northwestern Africa, which had rejected the idolatro-philosophic system of pagan and imperial Rome, and had accepted, after lukewarm fashion, the Aryan Christianity imported by the Vandals, and the Nicene mystery of the Trinity, hailed with enthusiasm the doctrines of the Koran, and has never ceased to be the most zealous in its Islam. And while Mohammedanism speedily reduced the limits of Christendom by one-third, while throughout the Arabian, Saracenic, and Turkish invasions, whole Christian peoples embraced the monotheistic faith, there are hardly any instances of defection from the new creed, and, with the exception of Spain and Sicily, it has never been suppressed in any land where once it took root. Even now, when Mohammedanism no longer wields the sword, it is spreading over wide regions in China, in the Indian archipelago, and especially in Western and Central Africa, propagated only by self-educated individuals, trading travelers, while Christianity makes no progress and cannot exist on the dark continent without strong support from government. Nor can we explain this honorable reception by the licentiousness ignorantly attributed to al-Islam, one of the most severely moral of institutions, or by the allurements of polygamy and concubinage, slavery, and a wholly sensual paradise devoted to eating, drinking, and the pleasures of the sixth sense. The true and simple explanation is that this grand reformation of Christianity was urgently wanted when it appeared, that it suited the people better than the creed which it superseded, and that it has not ceased to be sufficient for their requirements, social, sexual, and vital. As the practical orientalist Dr. Leitner well observes from his own experience, the Mohammedan religion can adapt itself better than any other, and has adapted itself to circumstances and to the needs of the various races which profess it, in accordance with the spirit of the age. Hence, I add, its wide diffusion and its impregnable position. The dead hand, stiff and motionless, is a forcible simile for the present condition of al-Islam, but it results from limited and imperfect observation, and it fails in the sine qua non of similes and metaphors, a foundation of fact. 
I cannot quit this subject without a passing reference to an admirably written passage in Mr. Palgrave's Travels, which is essentially unfair to al-Islam. The author has had ample opportunities of comparing creeds. Of Jewish blood and born a Protestant, he became a Catholic and a Jesuit, Per Michael Cohen, in a Syrian convent. He crossed Arabia as a good Muslim, and he finally returned to his premier amour, Anglicanism. But his picturesque depreciation of Mohammedanism, which has found due appreciation in more than one popular volume, is a notable specimen of special pleading, of the ad captandum in its modern and least honest form. The writer begins by assuming the arid and barren Wahhabism, which he had personally studied as a fair expression of the saving faith. What should we say to a Muslim traveler who would make the Calvinism of the sourest covenanter, model, genuine and ancient Christianity? What would sensible Muslims say to these propositions of Professor Makovius and the Synod of Dort? Good works are an obstacle to salvation. God does by no means will the salvation of all men. He does will sin, and he destines men to sin as sin. What would they think of the inadmissible grace, the perseverance of the elect, the supralapsarian, and the sublapsarian, and finally, of a deity, the author of man's existence, temptation, and fall, who deliberately preordains sin and ruin? Father Cohen carries out into the regions of the extreme his strictures on the one grand vitalizing idea of al-Islam. There is no God but God. And his deduction concerning the pantheism of force sounds unreal and unsound, compared with the sensible remarks upon the same subject by Dr. Badgers, who sees the abstruseness of the doctrine and does not care to include it in hard and fast lines or to subject it to mere logical analysis. Upon the subject of predestination, Mr. Palgrave quotes, not from the Koran, but from the Ahadis, or traditional sayings of the Apostle. But what importance attaches to a legend in the Mishnah, or oral law, of the Hebrews utterly ignored by the written law? He joins the many in complaining that even the mention of the love of God is absent from Muhammad's theology, burking the fact that it never occurs in the Jewish scriptures, and that the genius of Arabic, like Hebrew, does not admit the expression. Worse still, he keeps from his reader such Quranic passages as, to quote no other, Allah loveth you and will forgive your sins. He pities Allah for having no son, companion, or counselor, and of course he must equally commiserate Jehovah. Finally, his views of the lifelessness of al-Islam are directly opposed to the opinions of Dr. Leitner and the experience of all who have lived in Muslim lands. Such are the ingenious but not ingenuous distortions of fact, the fine instances of the pathetic fallacy, and the noteworthy illustrations of the falsehood of extremes, which have engendered Mohammedanism a relapse, the worst form of monotheism, and which have been eagerly seized upon and further deformed by the authors of popular books, that is, volumes written by those who know little for those who know less. In al-Rashid's day, a mighty change had passed over the primitive simplicity of al-Islam, the change to which faiths and creeds, like races and empires and all things sublunary, are subject. 
the proximity of Persia, and the close intercourse with the Greco-Romans, had polished and greatly modified the physiognomy of the rugged old belief. All manner of metaphysical subtleties had cropped up, with the usual disintegrating effect, and some of these threatened even the unity of the Godhead. Musailima and Karmat had left traces of their handiwork. The Mutazilites, separatists or secessors, actively propagated their doctrine of a created and temporal Koran. The Khariji, or Ibazi, who rejects and reviles Abu Turab, Caliph Ali, contended passionately with the Shia, who reviles and rejects the other three successors. And these sectarians, favored by the learned, and by the Abbasides in their jealous hatred of the Omiyads, went to the extreme length of the Ali Ilahi, the godmakers of Ali, whilst the Dari and the Zindik, the Mandanist and the Agnoetic, proposed to sweep away the whole edifice. The Neoplatonism and Gnosticism, which had not essentially affected Christendom, found in al-Islam a rich fallow, and gained strength and luxuriance by the solid materialism and conservatism of its basis. Such were a few of the distracting and resolving influences which time had brought to bear upon the true believer, and which, after some half a dozen generations, had separated the several schisms by a wider breach than that which yawns between Orthodox, Romanist, and Lutheran. Nor was this scandal in al-Islam abated until the Tartar sword applied to it the sharpest remedy. End of section 23